Kia ora, and welcome to the Maxim Institute Book Club. My name is Jeremy, and this month I'm joined by Julian Wood. Over the course of the last generation, mantras of excess have driven our culture of consumption. Bigger is better, greed is good, too much is never enough. But before Gordon Gekko gave human form to the corporate zeitgeist of the 1980s, and before we could upsize our combos, a German-born economist planted a warning flag with his book Small is Beautiful, a study of economics as if people mattered. Our senior researcher Julian Wood made this book his choice for the Maxim Institute Book Club, and he joins me for this month's podcast conversation. All right, so Julian, welcome to the Maxim Institute Book Club. This book this month is your choice, uh, Small is Beautiful by Schumacher. In, in reading this, I <laughs> sometimes we call you the doom wizard at um, at Maxim, and in reading this, I definitely got uh, some of that sense. Um, it's quite amazing, actually, Schumacher writing this, um, you know, the beginning of the 1970s, um, and so much of what he's pinpointing um, are big, big, big issues that are right to the forefront of public conversation, um, you know, right now. And so I guess just to start off the podcast, I'd be interested to know um, what it was that made you choose this as your first pick for the for the Backsmith Institute Book Club uh, and when you first came across this work and kind of what impact it had on you when you first read it. It's an interesting little book, relatively famous in certain circles. And if I'm honest, had no clue what it was about. Uh, had heard from various people it was a good book to read, had seen it around the Maxim office, uh, I do like Schumacher's some of Schumacher's other work. What other work has he done? Like, I mean, you know, as as an economist yourself, is I mean, he is he an influential economist outside of this book? Yeah, he's fairly celebrated. I mean, this would probably be one of his big pieces, right? Small is beautiful, um, and you know, it's one of those pieces that that people often harken back to and then say, oh, though I've never actually read it. I'm struggling to recall the names of the other books, but there's a couple also lying around the office that I've you know perused and and had a look at. So. Am I a fan? Becoming more of a fan. Um, having said that, I mean, hugely influential in the 70s. Uh, you know, hung around with people like Lord Keynes um, on the, the UK's coal board. Sort of a controversial figure. And I would say, yeah, a bit of a prophet, actually. A lot of what he says in, in this book, I think, is is a product of its time. But also, I think, says, you know, if we don't change, things are going to go pretty badly. And and yeah, maybe a prophet of doom, but also I think someone who's trying to solve those problems. So it is one of those books that people, they refer back to, they, they say, you know, small is beautiful, inside a joke. Why did I choose it? It was just on the list, it had economics, I liked the title. <laughs> um, had I read it before? No. Did I know what I was getting myself into? Absolutely not. Is it hard to read this book at times? Absolutely yes. Don't do it if you've had a bad day, you know, don't read this book if you've had a bad day. And also understand that it is a product of its time. So there's there's language in here that some people might find offensive. There's uh, ways of talking about other countries and cultures, which probably wouldn't be written the same way today. You know, there's a lot of things in here which, at face value, if if you get upset, you might find yourself upset. Having said that, if you if you look at the the big themes here, it really is quite a seminal piece, um, especially in the economics field. I, just to start off with, I thought I might just read a quote that sort of early on really was like, oof, just talking about economics and just to start off our conversation. As you've already referred to, um, Keynes, Lord Maynard Keynes, who's the sort of well-known father of fiscal policy, um, a, a hugely influential economist. Um, and he sort of brings Keynes in for some uh, 
retribution here in his book. Um, and just I'll pick it up. He's talking about Keynes um, and, and some of his views on what's necessary for human sort of development and thriving when it comes to economics. And, and I quote from Schumacher, economic progress, Keynes counseled, is obtainable only if we employ those powerful human drives of selfishness, which religion and traditional wisdom universally call upon us to resist. The modern economy is propelled by a frenzy of greed and indulges in an orgy of envy. And these are not accidental features, but the very causes of its expansionist success. The question is whether such causes can be effective for long or whether they carry within themselves the seeds of destruction. If Keynes says that foul is useful and fair is not, he propounds a statement of fact which may be which may be true or false, or it may look true in the short run and turn out to be false in the longer run. Which is it? And I think that's probably one of the key questions in the book. Um, so, you know, looking at that quote, but sort of taking a view of the entire book, which is it, Julian? <laughs> yeah, I mean, he, he makes a very strong case in this book that actually uh, we need to... to to what I say, undergird ourselves with some form of ethical practice, and that yeah, that capitalism in and of itself is basically well the type of capitalism that is being promoted by Keynes, one where you know foul is fair and foul is useful, um, and fair is not use- useful, really is one which which leads us to a place of um, great danger, yeah. So it can it can potentially answer the economic problem of production, i.e., how do we produce enough? Uh, but it will have certain consequences for us in the long run. And Keynes Keynes's you know usual quip was well in the long run we're dead anyway. Um, and I think what Schumacher is trying to do here is say well intergenerationally we're not dead. Our our children and our grandchildren and our great grandchildren will inherit the the world that we create. And if that is one that is built on foul means then um you know greed usury um then then we're in for a whole lot of pain down the road so i mean i think i think he's right i think in some respects keynes is you know um keynes has obviously had had an agenda with that that whole whole speech that he wrote you know saying actually for a little a little bit longer keynes in some respects he's doing keynes a little bit of an injustice keynes was a big believer in beauty and in and in um peace a whole lot of things but he he saw the means to get there was through this economic production and that's what Schumacher is calling out so it's it's fascinating to me because obviously Keynes is giving that speech around you know we, we basically have to use foul means and foul intent in order to achieve good outcomes um, he's speaking in the midst of the depression. It was interesting to me the the parallels between you know the famous George W. Bush speech after you know two days after nine um, eleven that basically Americans need to go out and spend so that our way of life is not um, brought down by the this attack in the way that the attack is meant for it to happen. And this idea that essentially economic success is the one measure of how well we're doing as a country. You know, I, I thought that Schumacher had a really great um, challenge to that, where he was, you know, sort of pointed out that, you know, quite early on in the study of economics, it kind of tended to overwhelm um, other fields of study. And that the, the sort of the most uh, compelling thing you could say against any move or any measure or any political idea was that it was uneconomic. And you can call something, uh, I can't remember exactly the words he used, but you can call something, you know, horrendous, inhuman, all this sort of stuff, but nothing is quite as strong as saying that it's uneconomic. 
So how did you feel as an economist reading that? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I really enjoyed that quote, so I'm desperately trying to find it. Um, because it's one of my favourite favorite quotes in the book, actually. Um, I, should have, I should have had an easy access guide, shouldn't I? But, but it really is this, this sense that, you know, you can, you can have something that destroys half the earth, but as long as it's, as long as it's uneconomic, it's okay. And I do think that, um, yeah, I, yeah, here it is here, I've got it. You know, you can call a thing immoral or ugly, soul-destroying or a degradation of man or woman, uh, a peril to the peace of the world or to the well-being of future generations, as long as you have not shown it to be uneconomic. You have not really questioned its right to exist, to grow and to prosper. I, I just think that's a, a fantastic way of framing... And, and later in the book, he calls it the religion of economics. In some respects, I think he is calling out the, the sort of the economic reductionist that, that if something is, you know, is uneconomic, it shouldn't exist. And if something is economic, it has a right to exist. And I think what he's calling us to is say, well, just because we can do something doesn't mean we should do something. Just because something can make a profit doesn't mean we, it, should, it should still be produced. And um, I, I mean, I think that's just probably, I, I think for me, that's the quote of the book in some respects that, you know, actually as the economic narrative has, or, you know, has gained ascendancy, what have we lost along the way? And, and we have lost things. And it's really interesting because reading his, um, you know, I mean, just all through baked into that idea throughout the book is this idea that um, we've kind of defaulted in a, in a society that doesn't claim any one particular organizing um, kind of morality or organizing philosophy in a society that basically says, look, we can't, we can't claim one source of truth or one source of purpose or meaning for all people, because that leads to huge, you know, um, wars and, and, you know, um, dissent and, and, you know, we can't, we can't live peacefully with one another if we, if we try to say that there has to be one unifying philosophy that sort of undergirds all of life. What he's pointing to is essentially that by, you know, if, if Americans say that, you know, um, the American constitution points to life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness, um, we have kind of defaulted to this idea that the pursuit of happiness is the pursuit of economic ends, pursuit of wealth, a pursuit of, of, of comfort that is, that is enabled by large amounts of wealth and consumption. And so in a way, we've actually, we have, you know, sort of gathered around a unifying new philosophy that is like a religion, which is this idea of, of economic um, progress and economic success that leads to all of us being able to have more. Yeah, and you, you have to remember that, you know, Europe had gone through, a, uh, you know, two massive, massive world wars or European wars or, you know, they were larger than Europe. But certainly there was this sense that, you know, ideology in and of itself will lead to, will lead to war and and strife, and and so what we need is something that will bring us together. And and you see Keynes um, arguing for a long time that that this this thing that will bring us together is trade, it's economic growth, and that if you can get people trading with each other, they have far more to lose through political disagreements. Than they than they can achieve by just agreeing with each other to trade with each other and 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 get on and so this whole notion of globalization in some respects around the economic around economic production and consumption is essentially this this thing that will unite the world into peace and and you know Schumacher I think is is definitely 
saying, hey, there's, there's something wrong with this model. You know, you, you can't build peace on economic foundations, which in turn rest on the systematic, and this is a quote, systematic cultivation of greed and envy, the very forces which drive people into conflict. So, yeah, whereas I think uh, a whole lot of economists are saying, hey, if we want to have peace in the future, we need to, to trade together, to be more wealthy together, to have mass production and mass consumption. And, and Schumacher, I think, is rightly pointing out that that is not a great foundation for peace. And, and you're right to point out, you know, the, the world wars, you know, like because essentially this idea of being proud of your nation had turned into the Third Reich, you know, um, this idea that, you know, our nation does it better than everyone else and our nation is kind of destined to, you know, it is an identity thing. And so there's almost, it seems like there's almost this reversion to a, a, a suspicion of any form of... Um, of, of pride in anything other than yourself. And so this idea that self-interest is the thing that's going to protect us from ever going to war again, because, you know, you can get goods far cheaper from trading with that country over there than if you just stick within your patch and with your people. I mean, I, I, I do think, and, and so this is where Schumacher sort of takes this hypothesis further, and, it, and this is why the book is seen as sort of a turning point in economics. Um, I think after this, you saw the development of environmental economics, which hadn't, you know, it was part of this whole rise in the environmental movement. He, he basically says, you know, unlimited economic growth pushes the boundaries of what the, the world can sustain, because actually a lot of what we're doing is, is using up non-renewable energy. And as soon as you are using up non-renewable energy, you, you, in effect, you, it leads you back to war because scarcity, you push the limits of scarcity, you see pollution rising, you see living space you know, being shrunk down, and then you get back to a situation again where actually now you're just going to end up at war with each other over scarce resources. So it's this interesting kind of counterpoint that actually, yeah, growth might be might work in the short run, but eventually you will run into the natural limits because economic growth has no natural limits, um, especially when natural resources aren't being priced appropriately. Yeah, and this idea of, of, of natural capital versus renewable resources that, you know, we have and that, that we've been treating things that are you know, that are finite, but seem infinite at the moment, like oil and like all the things that we can dig up out of the ground that we can use once and then they're gone um, because it's, it's been assumed that there is such plenty of these things. Um, and and, and it, for, you know, a couple of generations or however many generations, it's correct. You know, like we, we won't run out of these things, but actually we are setting in motion and setting in place a a system of consumption that that is self-perpetuating and leads to expectations around the way that we should live and, and what is possible to do that are unrealistic and, and unsustainable. Yes, I mean, and this is, so this, I find this exceedingly interesting actually because he actually riffs off Karl Marx here for a bit, which I, I think that's really, I mean, it's quite, it's, and so I've got two quotes from the Communist Manifesto, which I think reflect both Keynes and and what Schumacher is trying to do. So um, first about capitalism, you know, Marx says it's accomplished wonders far surpassing the Egyptian pyramids, the Roman aqueducts and the Gothic cathedrals, that modern capitalism is producing these unbelievably amazing, you know, things. The seven wonders, you know, now we've got 700 wonders and we've created them ourselves. 
But equally then sort of Marx goes on to say, so modern bourgeois society with its relations of production, of exchange and of property is a society that has conjured up such gigantic means of production and of exchange. It's like a sorcerer who is no longer able to control the powers of the netherworld whom he has called up by his spells. And you see this notion actually that through or through this whole book that you know modern capitalism is creating such irreparable harm to nature that it is it is like the sorcerer that has now started on a path and and you know that the powers of the netherworld are now beyond his own means of control and you you see that in the modern dialogue right you see that in the students marching down the street there is no planet b you know and this sort of overwhelming sense that things that are out of control what we thought we could control what we thought we could do with mass production are now well creating harm and especially for future generations so i think it's it's really interesting to see these these big thinkers actually coming together and it is it is something i think that he harkens to later in the book when he sort of says you know the real thing the real thing we need to to talk about is ideas that actually if you really want to change the world forget production and consumption let's talk about ideas and he is he's he's calling out the ideas of keynes he's calling out the ideas of, of economists and saying you know you've got this wrong um your equations are wrong your um obsession with size and with economies of scale and with trade are wrong your inability to price oil and coal and and basically fossil fuels is wrong and and what we need to do is is change the way we are we are we are thinking about about the economy and about our future and i think that if you know he was writing today he would add in your ability your inability to price carbon emissions well absolutely right i think he's even he's he's writing before he's he's writing before you know the terminology that we use today to talk about these topics existed so at one point i was like oh what's he even talking about and part of it is that you know he didn't have a word for renewables so he was talking about capital income flows and in capital stocks, you know, um, and basically saying if it's a non-renewable, it's a stock, but we're treating it like an income. And if it's a renewable, it's an income flow. And so it's a little bit confusing to read. So like treating oil like it's just an income that we that we can constantly have coming in rather than a stock that is depleted and it's not being renewed. Yeah. And so, I mean, in some respects, and, and then he's debating it also at a time where nuclear energy... Um, was seen as the saviour, the energy saviour, because, you know, this wonderful technology that was basically harmless, or maybe it's not so harmless, we're not quite sure, but we get something for nothing. A little bit of plutonium gives you a whole lot of energy for a long time, and it's safe and clean and all that sort of thing. In some respects, he's aware of the impact of carbon emissions. And, and yeah, so, well, yeah, because he calls it thermal pollution, which I thought was yeah, quite interesting. Yeah, thermal pollution. And so actually I was talking with Jonathan Boston and listening to some of his work, and he's actually, he's found, and it's a, it's a fant- I just want to dive into it because I, I love it, um, a Swedish chemist and Nobel laureate, uh, Savante Arrhenius, in 1896 calculated uh, what would happen if we doubled concentrations of CO2 in the atmosphere and basically says um, you know he's trying to work out what would happen and at the time in 1896 people were really afraid that that we would go through a second ice age and so this uh, Swedish 
physicist and chemist is saying actually no because of carbon emissions we're not going to come close to an ice age we're actually going to be heating up the world so this has been known and um, his apparently his calculations took him an entire year they're basically OLS uh, ordinarily scared regressions took him a year to calculate his calculations he became quite famous um, you know and so he said basically you know if we doubled emissions we would get about a five degree rise to equilibrium. I mean, a long, long time, people have actually been aware of the role of carbon in the environment. It's just, it's no way of knowing carbon emissions, how they're increasing over time and things like that. I mean, it's really interesting. He talks about that thermal pollution, right? I think he's, his numbers are completely out. He still had no concept of, of how far we would come even in the next 50 years production-wise. So I did some, I went and had a look at some numbers. So in 1973, if you use 2011 American dollars, the global GDP was about $28 trillion. And, um, you know, he's thinking, oh, well, if we double that, we'll get to a certain point. Or what actually happened is by 2015, it was $108 trillion. Um, so it's nearly a 385% increase in the last 50 years of global GDP. So, I mean, no one, you, he couldn't forecast that. He couldn't predict the future in that sort of way. But it, it's kind of interesting to see, actually, what he's saying is already a crisis of overproduction in some respects is we've gone and, you know, we've, we've not only, we haven't doubled that, we've nearly quadrupled quadrupled that so he's pretty on the money when he comes to some of the outcomes though one thing that he um he raised that is is kind of, it's one of those sorts of things that when you hear it it's just like it's a truism so you go of course but i just thought that the way that he talked about the idea of enough you know the mindset of what is enough um and what is rich and what is you know what is poor um, that these are all such relative concepts. You know, we have an idea of, each of us personally would have an idea of what would be enough or what would be too much or, what you know, no no person should have more than X amount or, you know, own more than this or own less than that. And, and he even goes into it in terms of population size, like what would be the perfect size of a city. It's really funny. He goes, he, he basically says, you know, no one can really put a number on these sorts of things. And then like the next paragraph, he's like, but no city should ever be more than 500,000 people. And I was just like, all right, bud. I mean, and that, that captures some of the time and place stuff, right? But equally, I mean, we jump. let's jump into the Auckland, Auckland super city debate, you know, because that was, that was sold as, hey, this is going to be wonderful, bigger is better, we're going to save in all these costs and we'll have one salary for, you know, what's it one called? One mayor. You know, one mayor and one CEO of the city, whatever they're called, or chief executive of the city, and one water person. And, and as we know, actually... Uh, or as we have discovered in New Zealand, that not you know, there's diseconomies of scale as well. You get to a tipping point where actually things, the wheels start to fall off, that you, you just can't keep growing things forever. And also that there's an intangible that's not about the money, but also about this sort of sense of, of, of place and sense of identity. And I, I actually really loved his whole riff on... Um, on these ideas that, you know, smaller countries, bigger countries, and, and just this thought experiment around what would have happened if, if Germany had actually, you know, succeeded in taking over Denmark and the, the nation of Denmark no longer existed today. Um, you know, would we, you know, w the counterfactual of going, well, you know, the, the nation of Denmark, you know, the, what used to be Denmark needs Germany to keep going. And actually what we've seen is that the nation of Denmark is thriving. Um, you know, it's actually, you know, it's a very successful country. It didn't need to be amalgamated into a larger, um, into a larger body in order to, you know, 
remain successful and in fact it's still got a you know unique contributions to the world that we look to and go oh well, you know lego's awesome yeah i mean that's the thing right and and he is he's pointing this out time and time again throughout the book that that and this is another thing that that economists love to talk about is mobility of people right like it, let's let's agglomerate people in cities let's move them around and he's saying, well, maybe that's not the best solution. You see that it, it's really interesting because we, I did all the, the regional development stuff a couple of years ago. And, and he is actually, he's pulling off some of those models and showing that once you start this process of agglomeration, you actually get yourself into, a, they're called cumulative causation models, where the flows start to build to a point where they just naturally occur and you can't fight them. And so you see growth occurring in, in certain locations and you see stagnation and decline occurring in other locations. And it's this notion of be careful what you start in some respects, that sometimes it's better to just be small and to say, you know what, actually smaller is better. Uh, this place is better if we just say, hey, how can we let this place flourish without forcing it to to become something else. I, I really enjoyed that that part of the, the story that actually places is, is important. And that actually structures that keep people in places are, are good. He refers to sort of the mass mobilization that was enabled by people, you know, having cars and, and planes and, and people could just up and decide that they were going to move to the big city. On, on a large scale, that reflects the truth about what we all know. Like, I mean, every place, every house that I ever rented, I, I didn't feel like it was my responsibility or even in my best interest to necessarily, you know, fix the house or to make it better or to slowly improve it. Um, because it wasn't mine and I wasn't staying there. And interestingly enough, since I, you know, since my wife and I were able to buy a house, we have continuously, when we can, we have invested in, oh, what, what about this house can we improve? You know, how can we make it a better place to live? Every time I do a repair to the house, and I quite regularly find out that the person who last was there to repair something didn't do a very good job. You know, because I own the house, I want to make sure that I repair it in such a way that it will be repaired for quite a long time. When I was traveling through America a couple of years ago, I was fascinated by small towns that were beautiful, you know, that, that where they'd had people in the past who, even though their city wasn't New York City or wasn't Chicago, that, you know, they, they knew that they were a smaller city or a smaller town, they were still like, you know, we are going to make this place beautiful. You know, we're going to create structures and institutions um, that are the best we can possibly do um, and they're going to be great. And you you even travel through places like Oamaru um, in the South Island, and they just have this beautiful history of architecture that's there where, you know, they have probably one of the most beautiful opera houses in all of New Zealand, even though they're just a small, a small, small city or town. But people who were there were like, no, this is our place, and we're not, you know, we're not going to just, you know, when we get the opportunity, move to a bigger city so that we can have better opportunities for ourselves but we're going to stick here and make this the best place we possibly can. And I think that, you know, what he calls footlooseness um, as being kind of this this really bad habit and a bad um, philosophy to be in the minds of just the population at large, that if, if something's not going well where you are, then the best thing you can do is get out because it's going to go better for you and your family if you just leave. Um, and if you can, do it. And, and that's why I think it's really interesting listening to the voices of indigenous people um, who, you know, generally um, across the world, um, indigenous people, there is something that's 
deeply connecting them to the land in their own philosophy around how they view life and how they view what the purpose of life and, and being on this earth is, that actually being connected deeply to the land and, and whatever faith or religious elements they have to their culture, there is always something about the land and about place. Schumacher at least is pointing to the idea that that's actually fundamentally good for us. Just maybe a couple of quotes, because I find this really fascinating, that and this is, I'll bring up this thing, he says, the religion of economics has its own code of ethics. And the first commandment is to behave economically. And then down a bit further, the first, as far as the religion of economics is concerned, the consumer is extraterritorial. And then to equate things means to give them a price and thus to make them exchangeable. To the extent that economic thinking is based on the market, it takes the sacredness out of life because there is nothing sacred in something that has a price. And so there is this notion that we commodify each other and we reduce things down to the economic. And so what that leads to is that we undervalue, for example, where we live. And growth becomes this, the all-important thing. So jumping down a little bit further on, he says the idea that there could be pathological growth, unhealthy growth, disruptive or destructive growth, is a perverse idea which must not be allowed to surface. And you get this notion, actually, where you see a little town is struggling, and it's it's you know, either it's, well, we, we have to grow, we have to move on, we have to move from this place. And other people are saying, well, obviously this town is not is not worth anything because it's not growing. Well, actually, it can be a place of beauty. It can be a place of deep institutions and, and cultural activities and, and things which... And memory and history and, and meaning. Yeah, yeah. And all of these things are just not priced by the market. And so they're just not, they're not seen. And hence, they're, they're sort of discarded. There is a really, there's a, there is a danger. And I think this is, is part of what Jonathan Sachs um, in his book entitled Morality is pointing out, actually, and, and it's just come out, but he's hearkening back and saying, you know, actually, once we reduce things down to the economic, we, we, we lose something. We lose a notion of who we are. And if we just solely rely on the market as a, as a source of ethics, then we're, in, we're, we're really in danger of, of losing the long term um, and so yeah I mean I think in this book he, he tries to he tries to pull it back he talks about uh, Buddhist economics part of part of this chapter of Buddhist economics that I thought was incredibly compelling especially um, and, and, and speaks all the way from 1970 right to today's big economic considerations um, he says, there is a universal agreement that a fundamental source of wealth is human labor. Now, the modern economist has been brought up to consider labor or work as little more than a necessary evil. From the point of view of the employer, it is in any case simply an item of cost to be reduced to a minimum if it cannot be eliminated altogether, say, by automation. From the point of view of the workman, it is a disutility. To work is to make a sacrifice of one's leisure and comfort, and wages are a kind of compensation for that sacrifice. Hence, the ideal from the point of view of the employer is to have output without employees, and the, idea of, uh, the ideal from the point of view of the employee is to have income without employment. And I was just like, wow, did he ever pick what was going to start to happen? I mean, in terms of like, you know, the idea of universal basic income, um, you know, all of these ideas around even, you know, the fact that we we can conceive of a a life without labor, a life without employment. Yeah. And I mean, I mean, that's he, he pulls this back later on and says, you know, in some respects, work is so fundamental to life that actually it is a great source of of fulfillment that, that work is work can be liberation it can be a way of 
not only sustaining ourselves but being in touch with the community around us with being in touch with with nature in and of itself which which Schumacher sort of says is, is a blessing I mean I think he's fundamentally right if, if we reduce uh, work to its contractual basis often it's seen as a negative thing that work is framed in a negative way you know it's an it's an expense on a balance balance sheet that often now the easiest way to cut your, your expenses is in some way shape or form to cut wages how do we do that we do that through automation and if yeah if you're a person you know are you enjoying your job um, often it's like, oh it's hard day at work didn't really enjoy it much you know, so even the way we frame it ourselves often is rather than saying you know work is fundamentally a good thing for me um, we, we frame it in this negative sense it's what I have it's what I have to do to pay for the rest of the life yeah, that I really want to have paying the man and and I think Schumacher in here rightly calls out that that notion of you know work that is dehumanizing and I think there is work that it's dehumanizing some of that I think is just simply I mean I think Karl Marx calls it the man's become the appendage of the machine um you know if if all, if all you're doing is turning a single nut in a, in a factory line as the cars move past you know it, it, it is dehumanized it is you you are now working to the pace of the machine you're working you know everything you're doing is prescribed but work doesn't have to be that work can be so much more than that. Yeah, I thought his distinction between what makes a machine versus what makes a tool that is used by humans was really interesting. A machine is still a tool as long as a human being's interaction with that machine is necessary or is, is basically, you know, that the, the human's involvement in the work is still skillful and, and requires craft. And I think that that's something that you know, thinking about what actually makes work satisfying is this notion of you being able to get better at what you're doing over time and to have a sense of mastery or craftsmanship or, or, or growing in skill through what you're doing. So, you know, a farmer can constantly, you get new challenges or there's, there's a way that you personally are growing through the work that you do. But thinking about jobs where you're just literally you know, doing the same thing day in and day out. And there's no real appreciable way of you kind of, you know, becoming more skilled at that thing because it's, you know, uh, that is actually really dehumanizing. That's, you know, that that's that's the kind of work that people, you know, sort of define as I, I, I want to get away from this or oh, I'm only doing this to earn money. Um, but I, I like you say, I really appreciated his sort of call for us to reframe the way that we view work, not as just the thing that we do, um, to pay for the bits of life that we actually like. Um, but there's actually something inherent about it giving us purpose and giving us yeah, a, a role that we have to play, right? He sort of brings that back and says, you know, actually production, when we, we're sort of obsessed with size and bigger and everything needs to be bigger to be better. And he's saying, well, actually, no, there might be, and I think he calls it intermediate technology, a way of producing things which doesn't dehumanise, is not focused on bigger is better, but produces the goods that we need or want um, while also while also providing meaningful work. So he sort of, I think he uses the example that, you know, if you wanted to build a ditch, a big, huge ditch, you could use no technology whatsoever and have lots and lots of people. They wouldn't probably accomplish much because all they're doing is digging holes with their hands, but you'd have lots of people employed. It would just be pretty mindless and horrible work. He says, or you can just use lots of machinery and have no one employed and just have a big machine digging the ditch. Or there might be a third way, which is you find a path which says, well, you know, is there a way to employ people 
well, building a ditch that doesn't dehumanise and just doesn't remove labour from the equation. And there might be a way which is not the most efficient or economic way, but actually it, it drives a meaningful life and purpose that actually there is a, a third way that we need to try and try and find. Given this was written so long ago, you alluded to the fact that there's sort of, you know, environmental economists, there's sustainable economists now. Are there people who are kind of influential now? You know, who who are those people who are influential now who are trying to figure out a way to actually, and it feels bad even saying this word given the context of the conversation, but incentivize ways in which, you know, producers and people who are making these kinds of economic decisions to actually make those kinds of decisions? So, I mean, I studied, and this is... 20 years ago, um, natural resource economics as sort of a, a, a paper, a fifth year economics paper. And, you know, it was actually quite, it was quite fun, right? Because even things like fish stocks, we can deplete fish stocks or we can harvest fish at an appropriate rate that allows the fish stock to become a renewable resource, right? If you overfish, the fish stock dies. And um, there's all sorts of things like there's Hamiltonian equations that you can fire in some assumptions and it spits out a you know a harvest rate and which is really cool and i i love doing it um it's also they're quite frail though like a lot of these models are still quite frail so you change some of the assumptions and um and you get quite different outcomes so um i remember we had to calculate you know the the harvest rate for orange roughy fish stocks and things like that and you know we had assumed birth rates of every two years or something but it turns out that actually orange ruffy only give birth every 10 years and so we even though we'd used all this smart environmental economics we had over harvested orange ruffy for the last 10 years so uh things like that a lot of these economic models are you know we has come a long way absolutely there's another influential guy david Orter, who talks about automation and and uh, labor markets and jobs disappearing and stuff like that so um, I think he's from MIT. He's very influential at the moment. So there's lots and lots of work being done in this area. I think probably the big thing is around or maybe an inflection point at the moment. I think up till the last few years, a lot of the onus has been on consumers. So as consumers, what are you going to consume? And, and you have the power to change things. So as consumers, you can you can choose um, an environmentally friendly product or you can choose the non-environmentally friendly product. It's up to you. Um, I think we're sort of coming to the end of that narrative a little bit. I think we are now coming to a point where with all the climate change discussion and other things that now producers are saying, hey, our our mode of production is kind of failing. So I attended a webinar recently with a, a Harvard professor, um, can't recall her name off the top of my head, but... Uh, her whole hypothesis is around how do we save capitalism in some respects when the world's on fire and and so sort of the hypothesis here is actually firms have a role in in leading the way for example maximizing shareholder returns uh, she was arguing basically we need to take a long game now because if we continue to produce like we have been um, eventually the world's going to fall over. And so if we really are interested in maximising shareholder value, we need to start reframing our short-run economic arguments around profit, the profit motive. Will this activity still be possible and profitable in you know 50 years, in 100 years? Yeah, so you can make lots of profit for the next 50 years, but then if your grandchildren are all dead because um, you know another nation's invaded because there's no, there's no land left in their country because of sea, sea level rise or something you've, you've defeated yourself in some respects 
So in, in some respects, I think it's becoming probably rather than just focusing on consumers, I think we are now focusing more on producers as well. But, and this is where I think actually Schumacher's book comes into its own because he is continually arguing that sort of the whole way through, if you just focus on growth, even if it's long-term growth, which is what this new sort of what I would frame, you know, this re-saving capitalism argument, he basically says you've got two options. One is we one is we focus on the long term and we grow our grow our way out of this. And he basically says that's not going to work. That we need to fundamentally say, hey, actually, do I need this much to live on? And actually, what we don't need is more growth, more consumption, more production, and new innovation. But to say enough is enough. That small is beautiful. That locally produced goods is what we need to have. And I can see arguments both ways, right? Like you, you can say, actually, do we need never-ending new levels of consumption? Probably not. You know, we have moved from what was it, 28 trillion to 108 trillion GDP around the world. Maybe the issue now is not more, but how do we distribute what we do have better? So, in some respects, I do think um, Schumacher is calling us into something which is is beautiful and it's quite different to the modern narrative which is just more is better. And confronting to the modern narrative. It's quite a thing to read this book. I was like literally this morning, you know, walking around my house as I was getting ready for work and, you know, making breakfast and just seeing everything in my house that's made out of plastic, which is obviously made out of oil. Um, And just realizing that everything that I have that is made of plastic is made of a piece of natural capital that is not going to be available to future generations. Um, and just kind of going, whoa, what, what are the future generations going to think of our levels of consumption that we just sort of take for granted as kind of almost being our birthright, that we should be able to have such levels of comfort and, and convenience and to be able to travel anywhere we want around the world with sort of no, um, not a second thought. Um, and I do think it's really interesting seeing the return of morality, um, but it's not coming from a particular church or, you know, um, but but there is, you know, among, um, you know, you, you mentioned the climate march before, um, it's almost like, ex- you know, people like Extinction Rebellion that are doing these extreme forms of protest are almost like kind of the prophets of a, of a new morality. And, you know, people can talk about the roots of that philosophy and the roots of that fundamentalism and whether or not it's helpful. But I do find it really interesting that there is a morality that is that is pushing into this sort of, you know, uh, I guess, assumed neutral space of economics, that it's saying, actually, there is there is something and, and, and you know, companies having to even the fact that companies are being accused of greenwashing um, and, and sort of, you know, saying that they're more sustainable than they really are. Even the fact that they would want to greenwash shows that they know that there is a, a new morality that's at play in the economy. And I find that really interesting. And, and I guess that, that is something that does give me hope for um, the ideas of Small is Beautiful um, actually making more of an impact in the, next, um, in the next couple of decades than it maybe has over the last 50 years. And I, I think this sense of when is enough enough, I mean you mentioned the the travel by birthright and flying around the world and things like that, actually I think people are more aware that that's not potentially not the most sustainable way of living your life. Um, I do, I do think, I just found it fascinating, I went back and I looked at the numbers around renewables and the share of electricity generation and primary energy and all that sort of stuff and, and I, it, 
I was thinking that we're a lot better than we are, to be honest. Like, I mean, I've seen countries invest in renewables and you see a lot of the debate in New Zealand and, you know, I, I kind of felt like, oh, you know, we're not doing too bad. Well, turns out, actually, because our consumption, the total energy use has, has risen as fast as the growth in renewables, actually, as a share of total, you know, global energy, we're, we're not doing that well. You know, it's 16% as we were at the moment um, when it comes to uh, global, oh no, yeah, well, 7% of global energy power comes from, from hydropower, but the share of renewables and electricity generation, um, you know, about 28%, and, but that's just electricity generation. When you actually go to consumption, you know, it, it's, it's small, it's about 11%, or total renewables is about 11%, which is not great, right? Like actually, one, I think we need to think about, okay, let's, let's look at renewables more, but the big question here, and the big, the big thing that you were talking about is consumption. Like, how do we live our lives? Should we be buying an energy efficient car? Probably. I mean, I was driving the other day and one of my friends turned off my air conditioning and I was like, what are you doing? And their immediate response was saving energy. You know, it's that sense of the way we've, the things that we have grown accustomed to might need to change. And little bits do make a difference. Um, but that awareness, I think, that growing awareness of how you live your life as being really, really important for the long term, I think is 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 more broad based than ever before. Which is, is really interesting. Like I mean I lived in China for eleven years and, you know, people talk about China and, you know, all that all those new cars that are driving around and things like that. my my reflection would be that Chinese people as as a general rule were far more aware of this stuff ten years ago than, than we were simply because because of the price. I mean, everything in China had a price. So I could sell my newspapers to the recycling depot, I could sell my plastic, I could sell my, I could sell my, um, my glass jars. Because things were priced, people knew that there was money to be made through recycling or through, through making different choices. And so it was, quite, it was quite an interesting place to be that actually, I, I do think if we priced carbon appropriately, people would be like, oh well, Maybe I will not choose to drive my car today. Maybe I will take the bus or or train or something else. Yeah, and so in, in that way, it's really interesting because economics, the, you know, the laws of economics itself, you know, the fact that if you price something accurately, the price indicator will actually be enough to get people to change their behavior. But it's, it's, it's all it requires is actually for things to have the right price attached to them, factoring in the use of, of, of the, what he calls natural capital. Yeah, and, and there was another side to, it, to that too, though. So I like the idea that, that you know, if you, if you price things appropriately, people will change. But to be honest, I mean, I've known people with lots of money who just considered speed cameras to be a form of tax, you know, a, a pleasure tax that they were prepared to pay. And, and you know, I think it's that sense of that there's a deeper truth here actually yes price price signals are one part of it but another part to it i think is that underlying sense of ethics and and who we want to be and i i actually think this is where schumacher walks a really fine line but tries to show that there's got to be more than the reduction to price here that actually who we are who we want to be what's our ethical base is just as important and I see that in, in Jonathan Sachs's work as, as well. Actually, when it comes down to it, 
you know we can't just outsource everything to the market we do have to start talking about what's what we actually or what we fundamentally believe about who we are and our role in the world. I think that's a really good place to finish um, with essentially Schumacher's call to wisdom. Um, I really liked um, what he said and he basically says, from an economic point of view, the central concept of wisdom is permanence. We must study the economics of permanence. Nothing makes economic sense unless its continuance for a long time can be projected without running into absurdities. There can be growth towards a limited objective, but there cannot be unlimited generalized growth. It is more than likely, as Gandhi said, that earth provides enough to satisfy every man's need, but not for every man's greed. Permanence is incompatible with a predatory attitude, which rejoices in the fact that what were luxuries for our fathers have become necessities for us. Thanks for joining me this month, Julian, for the um, for the book club. It was a uh, it was a challenging read, um, and as you say, Schumacher very much a prophet in the wilderness, and I think often the, the you know the prophets are there to make us uncomfortable in areas that we need to be uncomfortable. So yeah, thanks for joining me, and um, hope you enjoyed the conversation. For all those who are listening, it's been a pleasure. Enjoy. If you haven't subscribed to the book club yet, you can email us at bookclub at maxim.org.nz and you'll receive email updates of what we're going to be reading and when new reading guides and podcasts are out. For more of Maxim's work, head over to maxim.org.nz where you'll see our latest research, analysis and commentary.